Good old fat Marita. He's not fat. No, he's the Japanese. Guy you saw probably was. Welcome everyone to the Four Corners Crime Cast. My name is Jake. My name is Rory. And I'm your host Katie, and today we are talking about Rodney Alcala Part Two. Gonna keep it going with the with the happy story of Rodney Alcala. I don't know if it's happy, but yes. <laughs> no, I was being sarcastic. It's the worst story I've heard in a while. And where'd you do your research on this one, Katie? Same as last week? Same as last week. The book was The Dating Game Killer by Stella Sands and The Killing Game episode of 48 Hours Mystery. Nice. They stuck to the killing game theme of the whole thing. Pretty sure he was also on Most Evil when we watched that the other night. But I couldn't remember. And Jeopardy. Dating game. Different. That's why the name is The Dating Game Killer. No, he was on a bunch of these things. Where'd you get that information? Can you cite that? The what? The information. Which information? That he was on a bunch of stuff. TV shows. Rory told me. I just made it up. That is not um, (laughs) a peer-reviewed source. No. Other Daily Double. So, where did we leave off last week, Katie? When we left off last week, Alcala had just brutally assaulted and murdered 17-year-old Jill Barcombe. When police found her, she was staged in a way that displayed her injuries and multiple ligatures had been found around her neck. On December 16, 1977, a month after Jill's murder, police were called to an apartment in Malibu for a welfare check on Georgia Wickstead, who was not answering her phone. And back then, phones were really loud and obnoxious, so everybody heard them. The first thing police noticed was the screen was missing from one of the windows, and a box was positioned underneath like a step stool. When they entered the dark apartment, they discovered George's body on the floor. She was naked and covered from head to toe in blood and lacerations. Every item surrounding her body, along with her mattress, were soaked in blood. Two feet away from her head lay a blood-soaked claw hammer that was used to viciously beat her. She had been strangled with pantyhose so tightly that broken bones in her neck had pierced through the back of her throat. She had been raped and sodomized, and almost every injury was inflicted while she was still alive. DNA was collected from Stephen on and in her body, but nothing could be done with it in 1977. Her murderer would not be found until 2003. That is fucking brutal. So I'm assuming credit to technological advances and DNA testing in 2003 is what led her killer to be found? Mm-hmm, 100%. Bit of a slow turnaround, but uh, pretty much a win. Pretty much. Because Jill Barcombe's body was located on a hillside, police assumed that she was a victim of the hillside strangler, who was also active in Los Angeles during this time. The task force dedicated to finding the serial killer, where killers, as they'd later find out, began to question every registered sex offender in the area. Alcala especially stood out to them because of how horribly he'd beaten and raped 8-year-old Tally Shapiro. In March of 1978, task force members went to Alcala's home to interview him. He had an airtight alibi for every one of the hillside crimes, but officers did notice some marijuana and took him to jail for drug possession. He didn't stay there long before being released on parole. Man, 70s California is basically a hellscape of murder. Yeah. For real. You couldn't even go outside without worrying about being brutally just murdered or mugged or assaulted or... Yeah, any of the above. But they were real lenient on the devil's lettuce, though. Not really. True to their form, man. It's California, bro. 
I mean, he still got arrested for it. Yeah, but then they just took him in and released him. There's people who are doing 30 years in Texas for the same thing. That's a whole different topic. I'm just saying, California took it easy on him. They they probably even gave him his weed back. It was the 70s. Couldn't tell the difference between that and oregano anyways. On June 24th, 1978, an apartment complex resident went down to the laundry room to begin washing his clothes. When he entered the room, he was shocked to find the naked and bloody body of a woman on the floor, staged in a way to highlight her injuries. When a homicide detective arrived and looked closely at the body, he discovered a shoelace and sandal had been used to strangle her. Her arms were bent under her back, so her breasts were fully exposed, and her legs were spread so her genitals faced the open doorway. During the autopsy, the ME found massive head trauma, her thyroid and larynx were fractured from the ligature, her neck had been bitten, her entire genital area was lacerated, and she had been sodomized. She was still alive when most of the injuries were inflicted, and multiple types of strangulation were used. I don't, I don't know, you have to be, like, crazed, I think? I don't know. how. Sadist. Sadist? He's a sadist. Yeah. The, the whole displaying and the whole, like, the extent of the injuries and... That's really intense. When residents of the apartment complex were interviewed, detectives discovered the woman didn't live there and no one knew who she was. She would be eventually identified as 32-year-old Charlotte Lamb. On June 23rd, she had gone to a local bar alone as her friends didn't want to join her. On June 23rd, she had gone to a local bar alone as her friends didn't want to join her. Alcala had also stopped at the same bar, a place he frequented often. So they met at the bar, and then he tortured and killed her somewhere else, and then left her in the apartment laundry room? Or did he do all of the heinous stuff in the apartment laundry room? It was in the laundry room. I think it would have been way too difficult for him to sneak out the dead body of a woman into the apartment complex. I'm sure he said he lived there, and then somehow managed to get her there and kill her. This same month, the skeletal remains of Ellen Hover, who had gone missing in July of 1977, were found in North Terrytown. Where is Terrytown? This is in New York. This oh, okay. is one of his John Berger murders. Oh, okay. Did they use, like, dental records to identify her, or how was, if it was just skeletal remains? Yes, they had to use, I believe, dental records. After Alcala had been interviewed by the FBI in December of 1977 and he admitted to seeing Ellen the day she disappeared, NYPD's missing person squad began interviewing anyone that may have known him. They learned that he enjoyed watching the sunset from the cliffs above the Hudson River. Detective Donald Tasek, Detective Donald Tasek took it upon himself to begin the search of over 600 acres of dense woodland, hoping to find Ellen's body. After going to the area 24 times, Tasek found a pair of underwear and a bra he believed belonged to Ellen. He tirelessly searched the area until he finally discovered Ellen's body. When the news broke, a woman called detectives and told them that Alcala had taken her to almost the exact spot Ellen's remains were found to photograph her. Did he actually take some women out and just photograph them and then let them go back? Or Yes. So sometimes he didn't go berserker mode. Yes, some women... We'll later learn when they released the photographs of his came forward and said, that's me in that photo, and they're alive because they came forward. On September 13, 1978, Alcala appeared on the famous television show The Dating Game. For anyone who hasn't heard of the show, the main idea was that there were three male contestants whose identities were hidden from the female who would ask them questions about themselves, like what their best day would be or what fruit they described themselves as. 
After a few questions, the female would pick contestant one, two, or three to go on a date with her. The female contestant ended up choosing Rodney Alcala to go on a date with, but fortunately for her, she ended up not going because Alcala gave her the creeps. You know what's crazy about that? The whole show gave me the creeps. Yeah, the whole show is basically creepy, but one of the things that I noticed was that it's a terrible fucking show. Exactly. It's not a good premise. This was like primetime 70s TV. Yeah, but it was fucking awful. White America loved it, Rory. Like, some of the questions, yeah, I, I get they were geared to it towards adults and stuff like that, but... The whole point was basically to be funny and make sexual innuendos. And that's why they, like, have them highlight specific words that may possibly be sexual. Comedy back in the day is just not good. The whole... The whole everything that Rodney Alcala said during the during the whole show, because of course the questions like Katie said are like kind of geared towards innuendos, just came off so creepy now, especially knowing what we know now watching it. But even not like he was creepy enough that she decided not to go on the date with him, which is good. I think it says something. Well, how ballsy is this guy to go on national TV after he's just murdered so many people? Right, in like, the middle of a killing spree. I yeah. mean, he's a convicted felon. He's been to prison and they let him on the show. So obviously... Well, that was back when uh, men in suits smoked in back rooms and made decisions for the little misses out on the floor. <laughs> I, I saw an interview from the, one of the other bachelors that was on the show with him. And that guy said that he gave him the creeps. He said he walked up to him. First, like at the beginning of the show, got face to face with him and said, I always get the girl. Five months after his television appearance, on February 14th, Alcala was driving along when he passed by 15-year-old Monique Hoyt, who was hitchhiking. Alcala stopped and asked if she wanted to pose for some photos for a contest. Monique agreed and got into the car, and the two drove to Alcala's mother's house, where he was living. It was too late in the day for any photos to be taken, so they spent the night there. The next day, they drove out to the mountains around 80 miles outside of L.A. They walked into the woods for around 15 minutes before Alcala found a spot he was happy with. He took pictures of Monique clothed and nude, then finally asked her to take some silly pictures, telling her to pull her shirt over her head. Right as her eyes were covered, Alcala hit her in the face with a tree branch and she dropped to the ground, blacking out. When she came to, her instincts told her to pretend like she was still asleep. She was able to fight through the pain of Alcala raping her, but when he sodomized her, she couldn't stand it any longer and began to scream. He stuffed her t-shirt into her mouth and strangled her until she lost consciousness again. When she awoke the second time, she realized she was tied up and couldn't move. She realized that Alcala was lying next to her, sobbing. She decided her best move was to be as nice as possible to him in hopes of saving her life. It worked, and Alcala untied her, let her get dressed, and they walked back to the car. They stopped at a small store, and Alcala bought a soda and went to use the restroom. Moni got out of the car as soon as he was in the bathroom and ran to the motel next door, screaming for someone to call police and banging on doors. Police picked her up and took her to the station, where they had her look at a photo lineup after describing the perp. She immediately identified Alcala, and police went straight to his house, where he was arrested and taken to the station. Alcala claimed she agreed to be tied up for the photo session, but eventually it wasn't consensual anymore. How do you, like, even explain that? Like, it wasn't consensual anymore. At that point, they're like, all right, well, then you're a rapist, right? Like, I don't think he admitted to raping her. I think he just said that he 
he did specific things to her that she was okay with at first, and then eventually he didn't think she was okay with him anymore, but she didn't, like, express that. He admitted that he strangled her until she passed out and stuffed a shirt into her mouth so she would stop screaming. In court, prosecutors requested $50,000 bail, but the judge set it to only $10,000. Alcala's mother posted bail, and he was released from jail on March 16th. On June 13, 1979, Jill Parenteau went on a date to a Dodgers game and returned home that evening. The next morning, her friend called to see how the date went. When Jill didn't answer, her friend continued on her date for a while before she began to have a bad feeling. Calling Jill's work, she asked if someone could go to Jill's apartment and check on her. Inside, they found Jill's body. When police arrived, they first noticed that a window had been removed and the screen had been cut and a light bulb in the stairwell removed. Inside the apartment, they found Jill lying naked on the floor next to her bed. Her legs were spread and her shoulders were propped up with pillows. She had severe trauma to her face and obvious ligature marks around her neck. The cord from a lamp lying next to her ran up to her neck, and the cord from an electric blanket was wrapped around her neck. The autopsy showed a blunt object had been used to inflict the head trauma, cuts to the sides of the mouth indicated forced oral sex, and her breasts were scratched and had deep puncture wounds, among other injuries. DNA was able to be taken from the semen found on her body, but testing wasn't available in 1979. On June 20th, 12-year-old best friends Robin Samso and Bridget Wolvert were hanging out at Huntington Beach before Robin had to go to quote-unquote work. She'd recently agreed to answer phone at a local ballet studio so she could take lessons there, and June 20th was her first day on the job. So like an internship-style thing. As much as you can be as a 12-year-old, yeah. As the girls played on the beach, Alcala approached them and asked if he could take their photos for a class of his. As the girls posed for pictures, Jackie Young watched the girls be approached by the man from further down the beach. From a distance, she believed that Bridget was her niece and went to go see why a strange man was talking to her. As she got closer, she realized Bridget wasn't her niece, but her neighbor's daughter. When she got close enough and asked what they were doing, Alcala quickly turned his face away from Jackie, grabbed his camera, and speed walked away from the girls. Not suspicious at all. Jackie walked back to the apartments with the girls to make sure they were okay. Robin realized that it was later than she thought, and she was going to be late to the ballet studio. Borrowing Bridget's bike, she said her goodbyes and headed home to change and head to the studio at 310. Around 5, the ballet instructor began to worry that Robin hadn't shown up to answer phones or for her first lesson. She called her home and spoke to Robin's aunt, who also couldn't understand why Robin had never shown up. Robin's mother was called, and they began collecting phone numbers for all of Robin's friends, asking if anyone had seen her. No one had. Except for Forestry Service seasonal firefighter Dana Crappa, who wouldn't realize until later that it was in fact Robin she saw. Aw, oh, crap. Around 50 miles from Huntington Beach at 5 p.m., Dana was driving up Santa Anita Canyon Road in the San Gabriel Mountains when she passed road marker 11. Pulled off in a turnout was a 1976 Datsun F10, which was similar to her car so she knew the make and model. Outside of the car, a dark-haired man looked to be forcibly steering a young girl towards the woods. The man looked at Dana as she passed and creeped her out so badly she continued driving. Well, that's not exactly part of the job description, is it? Later in the evening the next day, Dana was again driving the same route and saw the Dotson Park not far from where it had been the day before. The same man was standing next to the car, alone this time, and looked like his shirt was covered in dirt or some sort of stain. As she did the day before, Dana continued driving, forgetting about what she saw. 
I bet she remembers it like crazy vividly now. During the trial, she doesn't. I think it's pretty much blocked out of her memory completely by now because of the guilt, basically. Yeah. Makes sense. On June 23rd, a sketch created based on Bridget Wilvert's description of the man that had taken her and Robin's pictures on the 20th was released to the media. The resemblance to Akala was uncanny, so he chemically straightened his hair to avoid anyone recognizing his signature curls. Instead of just cutting them off? Yeah, he didn't want to cut his hair off. He had to change it, though. It's a much more complete makeover if you get rid of it. You saw him on that dating game with his fuzzy mop on his head. I guess he fit in with the times. So if you didn't see that video, he had a big old fuzzy mop on his head. Yeah, he did. He's always had, and even in his very old age, he kept his long, it's like shoulder length hair. It would, I think, be too dramatic of a change and look suspicious if you just shaved his head randomly. So this was like a good option, kind of in the middle. And then he said that his girlfriend wanted him to straighten his hair, so that's why he did it. And you can head over to fourcornerscrimecast.com to see pictures of creepy Rodney. A few days before, he replaced all of the carpeting in his Datsun, claiming that he'd spilled gasoline inside the car. On June 25th, Dana Crappa decided to go back to where she'd seen the Datsun on the 20th and make sure that nothing was amiss. She couldn't shake the feeling she'd seen something suspicious and figured going back to the area would calm her nerves. When she walked down to a ravine from where she'd seen the car parked, she was horrified. Lying on the ground, in front of her was the body of a young girl. She ran back to her car and left the area, once again not telling anyone what she'd seen. Obviously not calming her nerves. Why is she still not telling anyone? I just don't understand. I think at this point, now that she knows that something terrible happened and she didn't stop, I think she was scared that she would be in trouble. On June 26th, detectives were still working hard to figure out who the man on the beach was. They received calls from multiple California police agencies. Two calls came from detectives in LAPD who believed the composite sketch looked exactly like their murder suspect. Two more came from parole officers who said the sketch looked exactly like their parolee, Rodney Alcala. Yet another call came from Donald Haynes, who, if you remember from the first episode, is the man that followed Alcala when he abducted Tally Shapiro and reported him to the police, saving her life. He said that the composite looked exactly like Alcala, and Robin's disappearance sounded eerily similar to what he'd witnessed years before. A few detectives decided to go retrieve Alcala's mugshot from the Riverside Police Department. Comparing it to their composite, Alcala officially became a person of interest. It's kind of weird to think about that someone actually had to drive to go pick up uh, a mugshot, a mugshot yeah. instead of just being able to access it like on some database. And the book talked about how like they all stayed late at work and like sat around the station waiting for the guy to get back with the picture. <laughs> and he's on his way back and he's just got the picture and he's like, oh, these guys, these motherfucks, they're going to be just so just like, stoked. and they're going to be, can't wait to show him this and then... Uh, they had their guy. That's crazy. It's like the early 70s version of the 80s when they were all sitting around the fax machine and out comes it like little... And they're like, oh... And they were all like, this is amazing. We would have had to send some guy to drive all the way over there. <laughs> One of the detectives, too, I think it was later after, later that night after they got the mugshot, sat down and was watching TV and the dating game happened to come on and it was the episode that Alcala was on. No shit. Yeah. And That's he was crazy. like, this is 100%. Our fucking guy. He saw him and he was like, yep, that creepy fuck is the one that did this. Basically. Nice. How much extra creepy 
would that whole thing have been if you're the detective? You're sitting there holding his picture, staring at it like, you're a monster, you're a monster, and you look up and the dating game is on, and they're like, uh, what do you think of uh, bananas or whatever they Peel say? Peel me. <laughs> yeah, and uh, he sees the guy on there, and it just fucking ding, like this fucking asshole. On June 29th, Dana Krappa and her crew were working the area where she discovered the body a few days before. Used to seeing animal bones, one of her co-workers picked up what they thought was a deer bone and tossed it to Dana, who completely freaked out. She was the only one that knew the bone didn't belong to a deer, but to a child. That same night, Dana went back to the area. This time, she wanted to make sure she'd really seen what she thought she'd seen. Her fears were confirmed, and she once again told no one. Three days later, on July 2nd, while the crew was working the same area, one of Dana's co-workers looked at the bones they'd seen previously. This time, he realized it wasn't a deer skeleton like he'd thought. It was human. Police were called to the scene, and the skeletal remains were taken for autopsy and identification. Through dental records, it was confirmed to be Robin Sanso on July 6th. On July 8th, Alcala told his girlfriend that he was thinking of moving to Houston and wanted to drive out there to see what it was like. On July 11th, he left L.A. and headed not to Houston like he'd said, but to Seattle, Washington. He rented a storage locker and put some personal items in it, stayed the night, and left for L.A. the next morning. Once back in town, he told his girlfriend he was planning on moving to Texas on July 24th, and they mutually decided their relationship would be over until he was settled in Houston. For once in his life, Alcala wasn't able to escape police by hiding out in another state. On July 24th at 7 a.m., detectives and crime scene techs from the Huntington Beach Police Department arrived at Alcala's residence with a search warrant. He was taken to the station for an interview while his home and Dotson were searched. Detectives took over a thousand photos from Alcala's home, but the most important piece of evidence they found was a receipt for a storage locker in Seattle. Because it wasn't listed on the warrant, they weren't allowed to take it as evidence, only copy down the information. At the station, Alcala claimed that he'd been at Knott's Berry Farm on June 20th for a job interview. Despite his alibi, he was booked into jail and his bail set at $250,000. I'm guessing mom couldn't pay this time? No. And of course, he didn't get the job operating the fucking whirly gig at Knott's Berry Farms, so he didn't have no money. <laughs> he was going to be a photographer. On July 26, detectives flew out to Seattle with a search warrant for Alcala's storage locker. Inside, they found over 1,700 photographs, films, and negatives, including one that was labeled as Tally VA Rape, and another labeled as Ode to New York by John Berger. What is he, like, Beethoven? It's a fucking terrible name for anything, let alone incriminating evidence. They also found a small pouch that contained multiple pairs of women's earrings, which would be vital evidence in later cases. Dana Crapper was called down for an interview on August 2nd and 7th. In the first interview, she said she'd never seen the man or the girl that police had shown her pictures of. She did recognize the Dotson and said that she saw it on either June 7th or 14th, but it definitely could not have been on the 20th or 21st. In her second interview, she said it definitely had to have been the 21st, between 8 and 8.30 p.m. She said she knew nothing about the crime until Robin's body had been found. At the preliminary hearing, Dana told her third story, this time saying she'd seen the car, and only the car, between 10 and 10.30 on the 21st. So this was at... Oh, this was just an interview. This wasn't any kind of actual, like, deposition or anything? 
The third one was. It was a preliminary hearing, so she was subpoenaed to be there. Alcala was still facing charges in Riverside for the rape of Monique Hoyt. In September, when the trial was supposed to occur, Monique didn't show up to court to testify. Without her, the case was postponed. In February of 1980, Dana Crappa approached one of her college professors and said she needed to talk to someone about something she'd seen. He recommended she talk to his friend, who he didn't mention was a detective with the Huntington Beach PD. Dana met with him on February 7th and told him what she had seen, still sticking by the story it was June 21st and she wasn't sure if she'd really seen it. She did finally admit to returning to the area and finding the body but not telling anyone about it. On February 15th, she met with a detective and prosecutor on the case and finally admitted that on June 20th, not 21st, she'd seen a man and a little girl and that she'd returned to the area later and found the body. That same day, the trial judge ruled Alcala's prior arrests for Tally Shapiro and Monique Hoyt's attacks and the suspicion he'd murdered a woman in New York in 1977 would be allowed as evidence in the trial that began on March 6th. Is that commonplace for that type of thing to be allowed into a... No, because you have a very high chance of an appellate court saying that you should not have allowed that as evidence. Dana Crappa would also testify the true story of what she saw on June 20th, along with Robin's mother, who testified that a pair of earrings found in Alcala's Seattle storage locker belonged to her, but Robin often wore them. Throughout the entire trial, Robin's mother, Mariana Frazier, brought a pistol hidden in her purse, planning on shooting and killing Alcala when she had the chance. She later said that when she tried to take the gun out of her bag, she suddenly smelled Robin shampoo and felt a weight on her hand that kept her from taking the gun out and shooting Alcala. The jury deliberated for only 11 hours before finding Alcala guilty of the first-degree murder of Robin Samso. They also found him guilty of forcible kidnapping, making it a death penalty case. After only four hours deliberating, the jury sentenced Rodney Alcala to death. On July 11th, the Los Angeles DA's office filed murder, burglary, and sexual assault charges against Alcala for the death of Jill Parento. He also went to trial for the rape of Monique Hoyt and was found guilty and sentenced to nine years. In February 1981, eight months after Alcala was sentenced to death, his appeals attorney filed a motion to overturn his conviction and sentence, claiming that too much weight had been put on testimony of two fellow inmates who claimed to have heard Alcala confess and that the jury of Vaudois had excused jurors that should have been given a fair chance. The appellate court ruled that new testimony could be heard from one of the inmates that originally testified to see if it affected the outcome of the trial. When the hearing began on April 10, 1981, the inmate almost immediately admitted that he had lied. When this was going on, the case against Alcala for the murder of Jill Parenteau was dismissed. After seeing what was happening in the Robin Samso case, the prosecutors realized that the only evidence they had linking Alcala to the murder of Jill was testimony from an inmate that Alcala supposedly confessed to. The inmate had lied in a previous case, so they decided it was safer to not put him on the stand. In the case of Robin Samso, Alcala's sentence was upheld and he was returned to death row. Unfortunately, it was far from over. In August of 1984, the Supreme Court of California ruled that the trial court had committed an irreversible error by allowing Alcala's prior convictions to be heard in the Samso case. The Supreme Court ruled that the special circumstance of kidnapping would be reversed, along with his death sentence. He would be retried on all counts. His second trial began April 
1986. Right before Dana Crapo was supposed to testify, she took the judge aside and admitted she had no memory of any of the events that took place June 20th or any of the following days when she discovered Robin's body. Instead, the judge decided that her testimony from the first trial could be read. After a month-long trial, the jury deliberated and found Alcala once again guilty of the first-degree murder and kidnapping of Robin Samso. Right before the penalty phase, Alcala read the judge a statement where he called his attorneys unwilling and unprepared to adequately defend him, and he wanted the case dropped. The judge declined to do so. After asking the jury to not kill him for something he didn't do and saying he was harmless away from children, Alcala was sentenced to death for the second time. Just when everyone thought it was finally over, on March 30, 2001, Alcala's second conviction was overturned. The appellate court ruled that the defense could not adequately develop and present evidence from Dana Crappa's testimony because it had been read from the transcript of the first trial rather than her actually testifying. While the state worked to reverse the appellate court's ruling, in 2002, a law was passed that allowed corrections officers to forcibly take DNA samples from inmates that were unwilling to give them. In 2003, Alcala's DNA came back linking him to the 1977 murder of Malibu resident Georgia Wickstead. On June 5, 2003, murder charges were filed against Alcala for her death, along with charges of burglary and rape, making it a death penalty case. Was Alcala the first large-scale serial killer to get caught because a bunch of DNA evidence started pouring in? That I'm honestly not sure about. I think just around this time, probably, they caught a lot of murderers as soon as they could test DNA and get it. Yeah, especially out of prisoners and shit. On October 17, 2003, as prosecutors were preparing to take Alcala to trial for Robin Samso's death for the third and hopefully final time, Alcala filed a motion to act as his own attorney in the trial. He had spent all of his time in prison poring over the Samso case, and being a narcissist, he felt he could do better than any lawyer could. It's also possible that Alcala believed that going pro se would give him a good chance in an appeal if he were convicted a third time. He chose the worst possible time to represent himself, though, as in 2004, DNA came back linking Alcala to the 1977 murder of Jill Barcombe. In October 2005, DNA again linked him to the 1978 murder of Charlotte Lamb and the 1979 murder of Jill Parento. Under a relatively new California law, all five murder cases against Alcala were able to be tried in one trial, despite it being in different counties. Attorneys for both Los Angeles and Orange County would each present their cases rather than having five separate trials for each victim. Alcala managed to petition, and the District Court of Appeals ruled that Georgia Wickstead and Jill Barcombe's cases be tried in separate trials from Robin Samso, Charlotte Lamb, and Jill Parento. Once again, the appellate decision was appealed, and all five murders were allowed to be tried together. Before the trial was set to begin, it was also ruled that Alcala would be allowed to represent himself in the trial. When it began in 2009, Alcala focused solely on the Samso case, knowing that the DNA evidence was irrefutable. He rarely cross-examined witnesses, only ever really asking them if the victim was known to wear earrings because the prosecution had discovered that the pouch of earrings found in his Seattle storage locker were all linked to each of the murdered women. In one extremely odd cross-examination, Alcala asked the medical examiner that performed the autopsy on Jill Parento what the cuts around her mouth may have been from. When the ME explained that they were likely from forced oral sex, Alcala questioned that if it meant that the perpetrator had a large penis. 
Emmy said, no, there's no specific size, it's because it was forced. Alcalde then asked her if Jill could have possibly eaten a large hero sandwich and cut her mouth that way. He literally asked the Emmy if she'd ever eaten a pig sandwich, and she had to explain that normal people take bite-sized pieces rather than slicing the sides of their mouth, shoving the entire sandwich in. He'd just only seen Scooby-Doo eating sandwiches before, and he was just like... Like when they just open their mouth and shove the whole sandwich in. So does this mean I've been eating sandwiches wrong for my entire life? Only if you're shoving the entire thing in your mouth. I thought you were supposed to try and fit it all in at once. No. That's why I have teeth for To make matters even weirder, Alcala called himself as a defense witness. He questioned himself and answered himself for five hours. Nothing he asked himself was pertinent to the case. He completely avoided June 20th, the day Robin Samso was murdered. Did he change his voice when he was talking, like, questioning himself and answering himself? Was he like, uh, now, Mr. Rodney Big Penis Alcala. I think it was more he went, like, full Southern and was like, now, my client here is not guilty of these horrible crimes. That was my southern lawyer. What do you think? <laughs> that was good. You didn't ask a question, though. Be the longest fine. trial in the fucking world if he just talked like that the whole time. <laughs> That's why it took five hours. The <laughs> first trial where every single juror literally commits suicide on the third day. They're just like, we're done with this. On February 25th, the jury came back with their decision. Rodney Alcala was guilty of five counts of first-degree murder and five special circumstance allegations which included kidnapping, rape, and multiple murder. He was sentenced to death. Good. Fuck this guy. Fuck this guy. In 2010, DNA linked Alcala to the New York murder of Cornelia Crilly. In January of 2011, a grand jury indicted Alcala on the murders of Cornelia and Ellen Hover. He pleaded guilty in 2012 after initially pleading not guilty. In 2010, Huntington Beach PD and NYPD released 120 photos taken by Alcala in hopes of linking them to any missing women. 21 women came forward and identified themselves, and multiple other families stated that women in the photos looked like missing family members. In 2013, a relative of Christine Ruth Thornton recognized her in one of the photos that were released. If you recall from Part 1, her remains were found in a desolate area of Granger, Wyoming. Alcala was charged with her murder in 2016, but is too weak to travel to stand trial and remains in California. Alcala is also suspected of murdering 13-year-old Antoinette Whitaker in 1977 and 17-year-old Joyce Gaunt in 1978 in Seattle, Washington, and investigators in San Francisco are confident that Alcala is responsible for the 1977 death of 19-year-old Pamela Jean Lampson. From what I found searching, the only place the photos can still be found are on Flickr album. As always, if you believe you have information that may be helpful in identifying any of the photos, contact Huntington Beach Police Department. Holy shit. So, scale of 1 to 10, how bad is this person, Katie? 10. Yeah, he's pretty much a piece of shit. I'd have to agree with you there. I think the high side of the estimate of his possible murders was like 110. Yeah, I mean, this guy just killed a lot. It's crazy to imagine having that much time to kill somebody. Right. That many people. That many people. I mean, shit. It's worse, too, because the justice system failed 
so many people, and all of these women would be alive if he was just locked up properly the first time. Yeah. He's just a smooth talker. I don't know about that. Maybe not, but somehow he got himself out of this shit. Yeah, I mean, that was just... I guess the way it was back then, I don't know. That seems awfully fucking negligent to me, but... I think it was just harder to keep track of people back then. When you're on yeah. parole, if you don't report to your parole officer, what are they going to do? It's really hard to keep track of people when your national forestry firefighters are just forgetting that they saw people getting abducted into the forest. There is that too. But is that going to end the episode this week, Katie? Yep, that's it. Don't be a crappa. All right, guys. Have any que- as always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to send us an email at fourcornerscrimecast at gmail.com. That's F-O-U-R cornerscrimecast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash fourcornerscrimecast, on Instagram at fourcornerscrimecast, on Twitter at fourcornerscast, and at fourcornerscrimecast.tumblr.com. And give us a rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify. Check out our website, fourcornerscrimecast.com. Head over there for a full episode list. Or if you've got an idea for an episode that you'd like to hear us do, you can send it to us there. Or if you just want to get a sexy, free vinyl sticker from our merch store, you can enter the code BINGOBANGO at checkout. We will ship it out to you 100% for free. So don't forget, have your pets spayed and neutered. And we will see you next time. See you next week. See ya. Adios, motherfuckers.